All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our Sunday worship. Uh, just always very thankful and privileged to be able to worship uh, in the flesh and to particularly to be able to share God's word. If you're new or visiting, uh, my name is Sam. I'm part of the pastoral staff, and we want to, again, extend a warm welcome to you. As mentioned, next week, I do hope and, and look forward to our prayer gathering. If you are able and if you have some time, I encourage you to come. Uh, there's never a bad time to pray. And particularly in our church in this season, just know if you don't have personal things you need to lift up, we definitely need prayer as a church. So highly encourage you to join us next Sunday after worship as we spend some time praying together. Now if you're joining us for the first time, we are in the middle of a series through the book of Nehemiah. I know I've been personally just so blessed journeying, listening, preaching through this story of Nehemiah. And I think every sermon has been so applicable and relevant for our church particularly because, again, the series just... It ties right in with a season of rebuilding and regathering for our church. So that being said, we're going to pick up at the next chapter, which is chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, or if not, it's going to be on the screen. Please turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. As we turn there, let me briefly remind us of the context, whether you forgot or if it's your first time. Nehemiah is this character. Uh, he's not a pastor. He's an administrator. He's just a layman. He comes to Jerusalem, uh, the holy city of God, with this primary goal and mission to rebuild the broken down walls. And so far through the past five chapters, we've seen how he's gone about doing that. It hasn't been the smoothest ride. There's been his fair share of opposition, both internally amongst his own people, externally from the outside. And today, chapter 6, I would say uh, in this whole series, chapter 6 kind of documents the most uh, explicit form of opposition that he's going to face right as he is at the cusp of finishing the wall. So Nehemiah chapter 6, start from verse 1 and we'll read from verse 1 through 16. This is the reading of God's. Word. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I would built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not yet set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at Hakifurim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm and I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports, so now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands would drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Verse 10. Now when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced a prophecy against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid, and act in this way, and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God. According to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived 
that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. It's a reading of God's word. Uh, if you grew up in the 90s, I think a handful of us did, I'm very proud that I got to enjoy the bulk of the 90s. I think it was a glorious decade, right, before the whole Y2K bug and things got a little bit crazier, right, the 90s was a glorious time. And uh, I think you would agree with me, if you're familiar with the 90s, one of the most formative and captivating narratives that we all witnessed in that era, apart from the gospel, if that's when you got saved, was the story of none other than the legendary Pokemon trainer named Ash Ketchum. And let me just say, I, I, as I was preparing this sermon, I kid you not, in order to engulf myself into this story again, I was repeatedly watching the theme song of Pokemon over and over again at Starbucks. I still do go to Starbucks sometimes, right? I'm being judged right now by our fellow coffee snobs. And people were totally judging me because I like to immerse myself, right? I like to immerse myself. Now, if you don't know, the whole narrative of Pokemon is about this guy, Ash. And he has this life mission to be the greatest Pokemon master, to catch all the Pokemon. And as silly as it sounds, I realized the reason it was so captivating for me was it was the first depiction that I witnessed of what it looks like for someone to be on mission. In fact, as weird as it sounds, I actually reread the lyrics to the opening theme song that for a lot of us, it was our childhood. It actually almost sounds Christian if you tweak the words a little. Let me read it to you, right? The theme song goes, I want to be the very best like no one ever was to catch them all. That's the test. To train them is my cause. I'll tra- it sounds like a missionary journal, right? I will travel across the land, searching far and wide to help them understand the power, parentheses of the gospel, right, that's inside. Every challenge along the way with courage I will face, every battle to claim my rightful place. Come with me, the time is right, there's no better team. Arm in arm will win the fight, it's always been our dream. I was blessed <laughs> listening to this over and over again. You change a few words, that's easily a missionary's anthem. I definitely feel like it could have been Nehemiah's theme song. Right, Nehemiah was a man on mission with courage, traveling across the land, getting people to come arm in arm with him to what? To complete this mission and task that God has given to him. But as Pokemon shows, if you're familiar, anytime you try to live your life on mission, there will always, always, always be opposition. And in Ash Ketchum's case, it was in the form of a trio called Team Rocket. Okay, now I'm taking time to flesh this out for you. If you've never seen it, Team Rocket consists of a a man, a woman, and a cat. I am not making this up, right? And Team Rocket is this group of antagonists in Pokemon where their sole existence is to show up and to distract and to prevent Ash from completing the mission. They show up almost every episode. They show up with new schemes, new strategies, and new ways on how they want to basically prevent Ash from finishing the mission. Obviously, what's so enjoyable is one way or another, Ash realizes their schemes, overcomes kicks them away, and he continues the mission. Now, if Nehemiah is Ash Ketchum, right, a man with a clear mission, which so far has to be, what, complete the walls, his team rocket is this trio of guys named Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. They just keep showing up, right? These guys were the enemies of the Jews. And by chapter 6, they've already showed up multiple times. If you didn't join us for chapter 4, they showed up because they tried to ridicule and mock the work. And one way or another, that is their goal, to stop the building of the wall And today in particular, there's three specific schemes and strategies that they try to utilize to distract Nehemiah from finishing the task. Christians are all called to live on mission. If you don't amen to that, you simply do not understand what it means to be Christian. And in the same way, all of us will face similar types of schemes as we try to remain on mission for God. And through Nehemiah's interaction with his opposition, we'll see there's 
three kind of qualities or, or character traits that we need to cultivate individually. And even as a church, if we're to remain on mission, despite the inevitable opposition that may come. So those three things are, number one, we need to cultivate and learn how to prioritize in the midst of distraction. Number two, we need to be resilient in the face of criticism. And number three, we'll close by saying you have to fear the right thing. Fear the right thing. So number one, prioritize. Now remember, the context according to verse 1, the wall is pretty much finished. It is on the last leg of construction. The only thing remaining is to install the doors and the gates. And so Sanballat and Geshem, seeing this, they get a red alert mode and basically they have this last-ditch effort. Let's do what we can to prevent the wall from being completed. Simple spiritual truth for everyone here. Starting things for God is never the hard part. Ending things and completing them is always the hard part. We never have a problem at our church starting off the ministry here. But for some reason, there's always an issue with completing it well. That's just a spiritual reality. A few, years, a few weeks ago, Pastor Tommy shared how the people, they had a hard time because they were starting to get discouraged. A close cousin to discouragement, if I can use it, it's also with the D, is distraction. The basic definition of distraction, it could be anything that prevents you from giving your full attention to something. Sanballat and Geshem probably thought, we can't defeat Nehemiah, we can't discourage Nehemiah, let's at least distract Nehemiah. So what they do is they send him an official letter inviting him to a seemingly friendly meeting at this place called Ono. Never go to a place called Ono, okay, <laughs> unless it is Hawaiian barbecue. That place is amazing, right? You can go there. But other than that, do not go to a place called Ono. And it's this place 20 miles out from Jerusalem. It is not close by any means, obviously no cars back then. And the purpose of the meeting, it could have been a lot of things, right? Commentators say, some say it could have been a, a, an invitation for political reasons to uh, become more friendly and cordial. Now that Jerusalem's going to become a legitimate city, the walls are going to go up. Others say it could have been just a, hey, just come out, relax. You're almost done with the wall. Come to the plains of Ono and just relax. Others say it could have been more sinister that, hey, maybe on the road to Ono, they could set up an ambush and have Nehemiah killed inadvertently. Whatever the case is, it doesn't matter because Nehemiah gets the invitation and he says, skip, hard pass. I'm not going. Right, verse 3. I sent messengers to them and saying, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Right, Jerusalem was an elevated city. So that's what he means. I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come to you? Nehemiah was a man who lived and understood by priority. He had a clear God-given mission to complete. And he was not about to divert his attention and his energy to take a random journey 20 miles away to meet people who clearly had nothing to do with his mission at hand. Now it's important to note, there is nothing technically evil or wrong with going to this meeting. In fact, some argue that it would have been politically and socially even advantageous potentially for him to rub shoulders with these guys because these guys were governors in the, under the uh, Persian Empire. So maybe he could have said, you know, the wall's almost done. I deserve a break. Maybe I can, you know, put myself out there and rub shoulders with these guys and set myself up for whatever career move next. Church, please know this. The types of distractions that derail Christians from being on mission for God are rarely bad or evil. Rarely. They are almost always seemingly harmless and oftentimes seem like very good opportunities on paper. Let me give a few examples. The most basic one, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, don't you find it an interesting reality? Anytime you try to open God's word or pray, suddenly you get a text message. Suddenly an ad pops up on your social media feed. Suddenly you have this urge to clean the house all of a sudden. 
It's happened so many times, it can't not be spiritual. You know what I'm saying? Like, how is it that every time you're trying to prioritize what a Christian should prioritize, which is to abide in the word of God, to commune and fellowship with him, that all these so urgent, significant distractions pop up. And you have to ask yourself, what is your priority? I'll tell you this, it's not what you think it is, it's what you actually do. Or maybe at your workplace, a lot of us are working young adults, you started your job with a noble desire to, I don't want to just work. I want to be a light. I want to be a witness. I want to be missional. And, you know, I, was, I used to do college ministry, so I would talk to a lot of collegians and they'd be like, I don't want to be like those, like, retired Christian young adults. Like, I want to be intentional. I want to be missional. I remember there was a brother at my church when he first started his job. He was telling me, oh, there's all these non-Christians. Praise God. The harvest is plentiful. Workers are few. Not anymore. I don't hear nothing like that anymore. Now, is it because he doesn't care anymore? No. You know what happened? You probably get distracted. You get distracted by the ever-present leer of, I just want to find my comfortable bubble. I just want to do what I got to do to get a paycheck. Or here's a bigger example. A lot of married couples, myself included. At our church, the good thing is a lot of us start well and a lot of us have really godly intentions at least. So when you marry, and a lot of our married couples, we say, I don't want to just marry for the sake of marrying. Let's really live for the glory of God. Let our marriage be a beacon of witness. Let's, if we get a home, it's not our home, it's God's home. So let's really be hospitable. Let's open our doors. Let's use our finances to give and to be a blessing. And I've talked to a lot of couples in early on in marriage and we're like, yeah, let's do some beautiful things for the mission of God. We'd love to do that. Or, hey, let's make sure we prioritize spiritual health or in our marriage, make sure there's spiritual accountability. How can we as a Christian couple not ever talk about God? That is blasphemous. But now that our church has grown a little older, I don't hear that as much. Is it because people don't care anymore? I don't necessarily think so. I would rather say we've all faced our form of a spiritual team rocket that has distracted us, diverted our care and attention to other things, good things, whether it's got to save up for a home, got to pursue career opportunities. Or here's a personally relevant one that I think is going to become increasingly true in our church. Pouring out all our energy and time to the best possible human upbringing we can give to our kids. You know, as a recent parent, I can totally imagine how easy it is to fall into mentality of thinking all that matters in life is, is my family okay and are my kids okay? And nobody questions that. Nobody will question that. If you want an ironclad justification to do whatever you want to do, say it's for your kids. But can I challenge you? In the kingdom of God, children and family even are meant to be integrated into your kingdom living. They're not supposed to serve as a justification or a distraction or excuse to take an 18-year hiatus from it. Now, don't get me wrong, those are not bad things. But remember, distractions, by definition, it doesn't mean you don't care. It means your attention is divided. So if these things cause you to multitask when you should be wholly devoted to the kingdom of God, they've made you misprioritize your life. Nehemiah says, no. With confidence, which is so hard for a lot of people to do. But he just says no straight up. Why? Because he knew his priorities. And this shows because he keeps saying no. Look at verse 4. And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. If your no can be changed as a result of repetition, your no is not out of conviction. How do you know this? It reminds me of when married couples have date nights. Very important thing. Why? Hey, as a married couple, it's easier to get distracted with life. Let's really work on our marriage and our spouse. I remember when I wasn't married, in hindsight, it's so evil. But I realized me and my friends, we were like our own version of Sanballat Geshem, right? And we were like a team rocket. You know why? Because it was our mission to get these married guys to come play ball with us. 
So you know what we do? We text them. It's so evil, right? We took great pride in this. We text them and say, we would just say ball, question mark. They say, sorry, I can't date night. And as any good Christian man should be like, oh, praise God, you should do that. You know what we do? We'd wait like five minutes and we would just text them and say, just two hours. And they would text back, man, we're at. And we would text, by the way, did we say it's indoor? They would say, oh, man, I really shouldn't. And here's how we would close it out. This was always the sign seal delivered. We would say, we only have nine. If you don't know basketball, you need ten. So we're saying, it's on you, man. You don't come, this entire ball is ruined. We never say that. We just say, oh, we only have nine, dot, dot, dot. And that's when they soon respond, when and where. When and where. You know what I grew to really respect, though? When it became clear that a no is a no. You can ask a hundred times, and a hundred times they'll give you the same answer. Why? Because it's out of priority. It's out of conviction. They could have asked Nehemiah a hundred times, and a hundred times he would have said no. Here's the application. If God is a God of mission, his people will always be on mission in one way or another. What is God's call and mission in your life in this season right now? There is something, if you would have the ears to hear. Maybe it's to rekindle your relationship with him through the word and prayer. Maybe it's to reconcile a broken relationship that is just on the forefront of your mind that you're ignoring. Maybe it's to be more involved in the life of the body of Christ. Maybe it's to spiritually lead your household. Whatever it might be, the application is say yes and prioritize those things, the mission of God. And the way you let your yes mean something is by the inevitable no's that you will have to give out to prioritize what really matters. So that's the first thing we need to learn. You need to prioritize in the midst of distraction if you want to remain on mission. Number two, you need to remain resilient in the face of criticism. So the strategy of flattery and cordiality fails. So Sanballat, he goes back to the drawing board, changes his strategy. And the simple description of this strategy now is, I'm going to slander and gossip. That's what it is. Look at verse 5 to 7. In the same way, Sanballat, now for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written... It's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall, according to the reports. You wish to become their king. Yadi, and it goes. Now, it's helpful to know. The way the official communication happened back then was letters would be written on leather or papyrus, and they'd be sealed by clay. Why? So that no one could read or open it unless the person who's supposed to do it. Well, Sambala comes up with a plan. I don't know if he caught it in the text. He purposely leaves it open. He doesn't seal it. You know what that's like? That would be like today, I send an email, a private personal email to Pastor Tom, and I accidentally carbon, no, not carbon copy, CC. I don't even know what CC means. It's not carbon copy, for sure, but I CC the whole church inadvertently, a private message. Now, remember, this letter has a long way to go, no digital email. So as it's going through different cities and towns, going through different messengers, what they would do is they would probably open it up out of curiosity, and in it they would read, Nehemiah is doing what? Nehemiah's intentions are what? And so they would open it out of curiosity and start spreading rumors about Nehemiah. And that's exactly what Sanballat wanted to happen. It'd be like, again, I send a private email to Pastor Tom. Basically with all these false accusations of like, dude, you're shady. I can't believe you're doing this. I can't believe you're doing that. And the whole church is CC. And what is this rumor? He says, it is reported. Now, this is the modern day equivalent of this phrase. Guess what I heard? Or, you know, a lot of people are saying, or they said. Here's a general rule of thumb. If you want to sniff out gossip or slander, its DNA is usually arbitrary in nature, and it has absolutely no concrete source. It's just, an, it's them. Who is them? They're just, they're out there. <laughs> those people. I can't believe it. I heard. Don't, don't take those things seriously. Okay? 
And Sanballat's letter basically says, I heard the real reason Nehemiah is building the wall is he has political personal motivations to turn against the Persian Empire, to rebel, and he wants to make himself king of Jerusalem. Now put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes. This is not just false. This is literally the opposite of everything Nehemiah is about. As we learn, Nehemiah, he actually went to great lengths to make sure that this building project was blessed by the king, not opposed to him. Not only that, last week we heard he gave of his own finances, taking no personal profit to show I'm not doing this for myself. And it's just absolutely absurd that he would even have the time when he's trying to finish the wall to hire false prophets to say, tell people I'm the prophesied king. But that's what they're saying. So what would you do if you're in Nehemiah's shoes? Like what if someone spread a false rumor about you that is so far from the truth and everyone was starting to spread it and believe it and gossip about you? Can I tell you, unfortunately, this is so prevalent even today, particularly if you're a leader or a pastor. Uh, I actually think now more than ever, that's why nobody wants to be a pastor. Could you imagine, you're, you're genuinely as a pastor trying to do your best. On top of that, right now, the entire society's perception of you already is that you're shady. Nobody wants to be a pastor. And those who are in ministry are leaving for that reason. Now I get it. There's a lot of bad examples out there. There's a lot of bad examples out there. There's a lot of bad pastors. And so therefore now what's happened is all the pastorate has been put under a microscope. Even the good ones. It's tough. It's really, really hard. And the problem is not the criticism or the gossip itself. That's just inevitable. It's the fact that when you give in and care too much now about what people are saying, it sidelines you from the mission. Darrow Dash, author, says it like this, nothing attracts critics like vision. If you're passionate about what could and should be, eventually somebody will question your motives or enthusiasm. Somebody will misunderstand your intent. Don't be distracted by them. Don't let the critics take you away from God's vision. Pour out your heart to the Father and then get back to work. End quote. Look how Nehemiah reacts and he responds to this slander and criticism. He could have easily acted out of retaliation and be distracted, feeling like, I got to defend myself. Put down my hammer real quick and go tell these people what's really going on. But instead he says in verse 8, then I sent to him, no such things as you say have been done. You're making it up. Like imagine you're still on that email, okay. And I write this four-page essay of like, Pastor Thomas is shady. All he wants to do is become a millionaire out of our church, which is impossible because we're not a rich church by any means. But I'm just making all this stuff up. And his response simply is like, false. You made it up. Love, Thomas. That's it. He doesn't feel the need to defend himself. He just says it like, you just made this up. It's just not true. And he straight up says, recognizing, you're just trying to frighten me, so I put down my hammer of building. It's not going to happen. Now, I do love the fact that Nehemiah, though, he's clearly not a robot because he prays at the end. He says, Lord, strengthen my hands. Why does he pray that? He's praying that because it was starting to get to him probably. Think about it. He's been working tirelessly for a God-given mission. And to hear his own people constantly question his motives or spread false rumors about him. Wouldn't you be frustrated or discouraged? But he says, God, not what's wrong with these people. Not, all right, screw it then. I'm not going to do this anymore. He just says, God, strengthen my hands and my resolve. Now bring it down to our level. If you've been on the receiving end of slander or gossip, whether in friendship, whether in church, whether in whatever it might be, and it has caused you to be paralyzed and sidelined, can I encourage you? Don't let that sideline you from the mission of God. Like Nehemiah, let the fruit of your life be your defense. 
what boggles my mind is how much slander and how much accusation came against our Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. Never felt the need to defend himself. He just lived as a Christian. And that was his testimony and witness. So don't give in to temptation to therefore be like, all right, I'm out then. Nobody recognizes what I'm doing. Or don't fall into the equally dangerous temptation to now devote all your time and energy to become a lawyer and now defend yourself. There will always be sand ballots in your life if you're trying to live for God. Now here's the flip side of that. If there are no sand ballots in your life, the Bible seems to say you're probably not trying to live for God. Because the godly will face opposition. But if you do, offer your burdens to the Lord knowing he is your defense and ask him to strengthen your hands. Now I have to mention this because I've been a part of this church a long time and I do think this it might be a little more relevant for some of our church. Some of us, unfortunately, we can actually relate more to Sanballat in that we have taken part in or we regularly take part in the spread of gossip and slander, whether intentionally or not. Can I encourage us to pause and recognize, objectively, scripturally speaking, how damaging and destructive that can be, especially in the context of the church. Now, I want to clarify, this is not to say there's no place for appropriate constructive criticism. But even I catch this in myself. If the dominant tone of what we share about others in the church or, or, you know, friends in the church or leaders in the church is filled with a suspicious and a critical spirit. And a lot of what we share comes from the source of guess what I heard or these people said that. I do think we need to pause and ask, are we maybe unintentionally hindering God's work or even God's people without knowing about it? And that's such a tricky, tricky thing to talk about because it's not black and white. But I do think the text brings up that kind of thing to consider. So we need to prioritize because we'll face distraction. And we need to be resilient because living on mission always comes with a healthy dose of criticism and maybe even slander. And third, we need to fear the right thing. When Simon Ballet and Tobiah realize distraction didn't work, slander didn't work, they go to what every human operates off of, which is fear. Now in verse 10 to 13, I won't get into too many details because of time's sake. But if I can summarize what happens in 10 to 13, basically Sanballat and Geshem, they hire one of his own. So sneaky. They hire a Jewish prophet named Shemaiah. And they basically tell Shemaiah to tell Nehemiah, there is a credible threat on your life. Somebody is going to come kill you tonight. Now if I came to you. Not just a random person, but as a friend, as a pastor with authority. And I said, hey, someone's going to kill you tonight. Wouldn't that strike fear in you? I think it would strike fear in me. I'm a credible source. And basically what he says is, you know what you should do, Nehemiah? Go run and hide in the temple so they don't find you and they don't kill you. Now the reason they were trying to bait him into that, is the text says, is because only priests were allowed in the temple. So they're trying to make Nehemiah basically ruin his witness by sinning. That's why in verse 13 he says, I understood and saw that Shemaiah was not legitimately a prophet. He was hired and that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. So but if he was operating off a legitimate fear of I'm afraid of getting killed by people, he would have gone. How did he not? How did he remain on mission? I've personally always been fascinated by fear. One of my favorite questions is, what is your phobia? Right? I just love figuring out fears. And I think a general understanding we all have is that fear is a very powerful, if not the most powerful motivator and influence to either action or non-action on our lives. Uh, on a shallow level, I'm always amazed 
when I see people are either afraid of spiders or afraid of cockroaches, they can be the most unathletic person in the planet, but when they see a bug, they become Olympian. You guys ever see those people? Like they run and jump higher than anyone I've ever seen before. Why? Because their fear motivates them to action. Or on a more deeper level, a lot of us can relate. Fear of rejection literally paralyzes some of us for putting ourselves out there relationally or in the church. Why not? Fear. Fear has this equal pull and power to either propel you into action or paralyze you from it. And the DNA of fear is such that you just, you can't just get rid of fear by willing yourself. That's what's fascinating about it. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine we went hiking. We're at a very, very high elevation, 5,000 feet elevation. And we come to a point and there's this really long, shaky bridge, right? And you're, say you're afraid of heights. And for some reason, being the bad friend that I am, I'm, oh, spooky, we could die if we go across this. Ooh, shaky, right? And I shake it. And you're thinking there, you're afraid of heights. And I told you in the middle of the bridge, and I'm like, it's fine, it'll be okay, don't be afraid. Does that help your fear? No, it just pisses you off more, doesn't it? Makes you more afraid. Now imagine that same situation. Come to the bridge. Where I'm walking across it, and you're paralyzed by fear. And I say behind you, there is a grizzly bear charging at you, man. Bye. And I just run. <laughs> what would you do? I'm willing to bet one way or another, you will likely overcome your fear of heights. And it's not because you're not afraid of heights anymore. It's because your fear of dying from a grizzly bear has now overpowered your fear of heights. And 10 out of 10 people will tell you, you chose the right thing. <laughs> you feared the right thing. Now, I shared an illustration to show you that's just how fear operates. It is a dominant and powerful force that can only be defeated by a stronger version of itself. Reminds me of diamonds, how diamonds can only be cut by diamond because it is the hardest substance on earth. It can only cut itself. Now, how does this relate to Nehemiah? The underlying theme and the tactic that Sambalat uses, that Satan will use even today to keep you off mission is fear. If you read verse six, chapter 6, verse 9, it says, for they wanted to frighten us. They wanted to frighten us out of the mission of God. Verse 13 to 14, for this purpose he hired him that I should be afraid, that I would fear dying so I would prevent working on the wall. Or these prophets who wanted to make me afraid. But what we learn from Nehemiah is not that he didn't have fear. No human is not afraid of dying. If you come across a Christian and it's like, I'm not afraid of dying, I would say, you a liar. Everyone's afraid of dying. It's not that he didn't fear that. He just chose to fear something else above that. Which the Christian would say, it is not the fear of man, but it is the fear of God. See, while Sambala, Tobiah, and Geshem try to utilize manly fear to paralyze Nehemiah's obedience... On the contrary, Nehemiah's fear of God propelled him to continue to press on towards God's call and mission in his life. You know, a lot of us, when we think of fearing God, we imagine this very, like, existential, intellectual experiment where, okay, so what does it mean to fear God? I, like, sit down. I, like, visualize and imagine this very conceptually big God. And I'm, like, fear, right? That's what we think fearing God means. Like, what, is, what does fearing God mean, right? But what Nehemiah is showing is the fear of God in the life of Christians is actually immensely practical. In the same way that when a bear comes, you run. That's not a conceptual exercise. That is very practical. I like how Paige Brown puts it. She says, the fear of God should be a perpetual posture and not an occasional stance. 
If fear of God to you just means this hour on Sunday where you just have to mentally do this fear exercise, oh, I should fear God. But the rest of the week, there is no concept of the fact that the fear of God is operating in your life and governing how you live. That's not the right fear of God. Fear of God is not contemplation. It's motivation. It's motivation. For example, a lot of us live our lives in the fear that we will not have security and stability, especially now. We just had a global pandemic. There's still a lot of instability. There's economic downturns. We don't know what's going to happen. They say even housing market, it could go 20% up or it could go 50% down. Literally could be polar opposites of the extreme. So you know what they say? They describe Gen Z, which a lot of us are, as the most anxious generation because you're so unstable and so insecure. You want to describe Gen Z with the adjective is you're anxious. Anxiety is a close cousin to fear. You're afraid because you don't know what's going to happen. So a lot of what drives our decisions in life, I would say, it's based on the fear of instability, things like financial instability. That's why are not a lot of your thoughts, without you even having to think about it, consumed with things like retirement. Is my retirement going to be okay? Or my health? Or our careers? And you know what the Bible says is those things are legitimate, but for the, for the Christian. They really don't matter in the end. The Bible's clear about that. Why? It's all going to be burned away. Your 401k will be burned away like a wood is burned in a bonfire. Your health, we all are going to die. We will all pass away. It's in the Lord's hands. Who's to say you will not pass away next week? But you know what the Bible also seems to say, though? It says that for the Christian, what we should fear more than an unstable life is a wasted one. Where we utterly fail to live in light of the fact that by definition to be Christian means you understand you have been given a mission. You've been given a call and a commission. Say, hey, get outside of yourself and now start living for me, for my kingdom. William Carey, this quote I always hold dear to my heart, missionary obviously, did a very foolish thing. A lot of people thought he would fail. And here's what he says, quote, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. That quote I was reminded, that is the mantra of the Orange County Christian. You know why? I think the Orange County Christian on the day of judgment, one of our indictments will be you extremely succeeded at things that do not matter. Do not matter. That's why the Psalms and the Proverbs both say, the starting point to wisdom that grounds all Christian living, it's to fear the right thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not only that, the most repeated command in all the scripture, Old and New Testament, it's not love God, it's not obey God, it's do not be afraid. Don't you think God knows how his creation operates? His created people operate off of fear. That's how we live. That's why we do what we do. That's why we don't do what we don't do. And that's why God says, do not fear. Don't be afraid. Now, like I said, I'm not helped by that. If I'm afraid and you just say, don't be afraid, okay, that doesn't do anything for me. That's why it's never left alone every time. Over 300 times he says in his scripture, every time he gives you a rationale, he says, do not be afraid for, because. I am with you. I will never leave nor forsake you. I am sovereign over your life. Reminds me of the story of Daniel. You're about to get thrown in the lion's den. And God says, don't be afraid. You're like, okay, God, I'm about to go to the lion's den. But then he says, I created them. And I'll be with you. Utterly changes the equation. 
So not don't fear because you're strong. It's don't fear because I'm strong and I'm your God. If you have a misplaced fear, you will be prone to live a wasted life in the eyes of the kingdom of God. If I can use a visual imagery, it'd be like paralyzed, being paralyzed by your fear of height so much to the point that you stand still while you're getting eaten up by the bear. That's literally the image. So those are the three things we see in Nehemiah that we should strive. If you want to remain on mission as a Christian and as a church, you have to prioritize. You can't do everything. You need to do the important thing. Number two, you have to be resilient. There's going to be criticism and slander. And three, most importantly, you have to fear the right thing. You know, as we close in a moment, we're going to have a time to reflect as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And uh, if you read the end of this text, you know, one thing that's really interesting, and I want to tie this to what Pastor Tom talked about last week. In the end of the day, the wall gets completed. And as the wall gets completed, if you read in verse 16, it says, When all the enemies heard of it, all the nations around us, rather than us being afraid, they became afraid. For why? They perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. One way or another, wouldn't it be an amazing witness and testimony that if, even if people don't like our church, even if people have disagreements with our church, they can't help but realize something's going on in that church though. Like if there ever was a God, he's definitely active in this church. That's the goal. That's the hope. And God is going to continue, you'll see. Even though the wall was finished, the story continues because it was never about the wall. It was about the people behind it. And you're going to see God's going to continue to raise people up. And so in a moment as we're going to reflect in the Lord's Supper, I'm sure all of us fall into one of these three categories. Whether you've been just spiritually distracted discouraged or maybe living in fear. In particular that third one, I would say reflect and contemplate. What fear is really motivating and driving you right now? Take some time, ask the Spirit to reveal that to you. And also ask, can the gracious, reverent, holy, piercing love of God drive you to fear Him above even that thing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your Spirit always accompanies your word for those who have ears to hear. Open our ears, open our hearts. Help us, God. Help your people for the seed of your word to land in good soil. For those of us who maybe are not Christian, God, I pray that our church can continue to be a place that shows a, of another way and another kingdom of what we are living for. May that become evident in the way that we operate and the mission that we pursue. And God, won't you continue to build this church. Help us, God, to live for you. And in all that we do to do it for your glory, in Jesus' name we pray.